Two weeks ago, we spoke to you about a centurion in Luke chapter 7 and saw in this man's life an abundance of the fruit of the Spirit, showing great evidence that he was one of the Lord's people and had already been born of the Spirit of God. A centurion was a Gentile. He was a Roman soldier from a heathen country, from a country that was steeped in idolatry and immorality. He did not have the oracles of God. And then last week, we was in Acts chapter 10, talking about another centurion by the name of Cornelius. And again, we found a man that was a Gentile, a Roman soldier, in charge of a hundred men, power and authority. And we saw how also this man showed an abundant amount of evidence of being one of the Lord's children. So you might wonder, well, how can that be? Well, it's very easy. First of all, we know that God has a people out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And we know that God reaches them without the means or efforts of men. This is God's work, God's work alone. God is sovereign in this. And we know that he will reach everyone sometime between their conception and their death. But we have a principle found in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, that helps explain this as well. Paul is talking about the Gentiles, and he says, For the Gentiles which have not the law. Now remember that the Israelites were the only nation to whom God had given the law, whether it be the moral law, the Ten Commandments, or whether it be the ceremonial law. They were the only nation of all the nations in existence in the earth that had these benefits and these advantages. The Gentiles did not. The centurions I'm talking about are Gentiles. So he says in Romans 2.14, For the Gentiles which have not the law are law unto themselves. He says, Which have not the law, yet do those things which are contained in the law, and manifest that they have the law of God written in their hearts. Now every time God borns them his children, the Spirit of God, he writes a law of life in their hearts. As described in Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 10. Where he says, in that day, he says, I'll write my laws in their minds and I'll print them in their hearts. Or I will print them in the mind and write them in the hearts. Now this is a greater law, even than the written law, you might say. So the Gentiles which have not the law are law in themselves because they which have not the law do those things which are contained in the law. Even though they didn't have the written law, they had a law of life within their hearts which was manifested in their behavior toward others. When you look in Matthew chapter 25, you'll find, a, at beginning verse 31, you find a picture of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll find he's presented to us as the king of glory, but also as a shepherd which divides his sheep from the goats. He'll put his sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left. And he will say to the sheep on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you ministered unto me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And they said, when did we do these things, Lord? And the Lord said, if you've done these things, at least to my little ones, you've done it unto me. Now what we have here is a description of their conduct, a description of their way of life. And we notice they did these things without ulterior motives because they didn't keep records of it. They were kind of surprised the Lord even brought it up. 
They said, well, Lord, when, when did we do these things? See, that's the attitude we want to have. If we are blessed to do an act of kindness, whatever it might be, we should do it and quickly forget that we did it because God knows and we don't do it to be recognized of men, you see. But notice what it did not say about them. It did not mention their faith, did not mention their belief, did not mention their baptism, did not mention their repentance. All these things are important. But see, what he mentions here are the evidences of a spiritual life. And you'll find that around the globe. It's just amazing how you can find God's people because this identifies God's people. And then we find where the Lord told his disciples, with this shall all men know you are my disciples if you have love one toward another. So I want to talk to you about another centurion. Now there's at least six centurions taught or brought to our attention in the Word of God. And the one I want to talk to you about this morning is the last one. And he's found in Acts chapter 27. He's going to be brought to, uh, to our attention in a different light, you might say, to some extent than the two I've just mentioned to you. This centurion is going to be a friend to Paul, who at this time is a prisoner. Now, when Acts 27 opens up, we find that Paul indeed is a prisoner. And he's gone through some ups and downs. He's been falsely accused, falsely imprisoned, one thing or another, just prior to this. But in the 19th chapter of Acts, in verse 21, you'll find where Paul himself said, Paul himself said, I must also see Rome. Remember that. I must also see Rome. And in Acts 23 and 11, we find where the Lord speaks unto Paul and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast been a witness to me in Jerusalem, thou shalt also be a witness to me in Rome. Now here's a promise that God made. How's Paul going to get to Rome? Well, Acts 27 is going to tell us about that. But from Acts 20, 19 and 23 to Acts 27, if Paul had known everything he was going to have to go through with, then he might not have been so anxious to get to Rome. And I've thought about that a little bit. I'm so happy I don't know the future. That is, from the standpoint of a day-by-day -day thing, I do know a very important fact about the future. And I know the Lord's coming again. That's in the future. I know that. I don't have to guess about that. I don't know the time, but I know He's coming. I know He's promised to come, therefore I know He's coming. But I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day or the next day, etc. And I'm real happy that I do not. If I'd have known and Karen and I had known all we were going to have to go through in buying and selling a house for the last several months, we might not have bought. It might not have been a house up for sale. But you know, I'm glad we didn't know that because the house we have now, we're very happy with it. And I think it's uh, much more suitable for us than the one that we're in the process of selling. And by the way, hopefully in 11 days, we can close on it. 11 days, 11 more days of prayer, brother. 11 more days of prayer. But if I'd have known everything we'd had to go on through, it, I might have hesitated. We might not have done it. But see, you're far better off not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow and the next day and putting your entire trust in the Lord's hands than you are knowing what's going to happen over the next few days and putting things in your own hands. Always remember that. That's why the Scripture teaches us that we're to live day by day by day trusting in the Lord and having faith in the Lord to help us on a daily basis. That's why the Lord said, when you pray, you pray in this manner. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Not this year, this month, this week, but give us this day our daily bread. So Paul said, I must see Rome. The Lord said, fear not, Paul. 
as you've been a witness to me in Jerusalem, you shall be a witness to me in Rome. And that's going to take place. Now, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the Lord told his disciples, he said, you shall be witnesses to me, first of all, in Jerusalem and Judea, then in Samaria, and then in the uttermost parts of the world. That uttermost parts of the world is what brings in the Gentile people. And that's where Rome was going to be. So in Acts chapter 1, we have Paul and them in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 28, we have Paul at Rome. If we did not have the book of Acts, you just dropped the book of Acts out of the Word of God, and you went from John to, to the book of Romans, you'd have no idea how the gospel ever got to Rome. You'd have no idea uh, how Paul ever got to Rome. But the book of Acts is a book of church history. It's a book about the early days of the church. It teaches us a lot about how the church ought to operate, how the church ought to function, uh, how, you know, many different things about the church and the purpose of the gospel, et cetera, and those type of things. So the book of Acts is an extremely important book. It's like a bridge between two sides. It bridges the four gospels and Paul's letters to the different churches, et cetera. So we come to Acts chapter 27. Paul is a prisoner, and Paul has two important companions. One's named Luke, and one is named Aristarchus. Now, Luke is the writer, the inspired writer. He's the human writer. God's the author, of course, but Luke is, writes the book of Luke and also the book of Acts. And four different times in the book of Acts, you'll find where Luke uses the expression we. When you read that word, it just simply means Luke is present at the time he's writing about the different circumstances that you find recorded in the book of Acts. Luke is with Paul on this ship. Aristarchus is with Paul on this ship. I go back to Acts chapter 19, and I find where there was an uproar in Ephesus because they, they were steeped in idolatry, and there was the false god of Diana, the, you know, uh, the false god of Diana, and the people around her thought their, you know, their gain was in jeopardy. There was an uproar, and they took two people in the name of Gaius and Aristarchus, who were companions of Paul. That's all it says about them. They're companions of Paul, and they were taken. They were arrested, in other words, along with Paul on this occasion. In Colossians 4 and 10, we read where Aristarchus was a prisoner. Paul said, and Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner in the Lord. That's all it said about him. But I'm going to look at that expression over there in Acts 19 where it says Gaius and Aristarchus was Paul's fellow companions. You know, sometimes that's all you need to be is a companion. Do you know that? That's all you need to be is just a companion for somebody. And a companion, it can be very, very important. It might be a silent companion. Sometimes they're the best ones. <laughs> Don't talk very much. Or you might like to talk a lot, and so you have a companion that enjoys talking a lot. But just to have a companion is very, very important. Now, you know, the first reason that God gave for marriage in the book of Genesis was that man should not be, what, alone. And therefore, God caused a deep sleep to come upon Adam. He took a rib out of his side, and he made a woman and brought her to Adam, and now he has what? He's not alone. He has a companion. When the Lord sent the apostles out, he sent them out in pairs. So each one of this pair had a companion. It was important that they had someone they could talk to, somebody they could share their experiences with, their problems with, their heartaches and their sorrows with, and their joys and their successes, etc. It's important to have a companion. Paul has two companions on this ship. On this ship, you have a total of 276 people. 
good many of them are prisoners. You have a centurion by the name of Julius, who is a centurion of the Augustus band. Remember, we were told that in Acts chapter 10, that Cornelius was a centurion of the Italian band. That just gives us a distinction here in separation of these two men and who they were associated with. So this is Julius, a centurion of the Augustus band. And so he has soldiers. So you got the centurion, you got soldiers, you got the captain of the ship, you got the pilot of the ship, you got prisoners, and you got Paul, who also is a prisoner. But if you read real careful, in the beginning and also at the end, you'll find where God, in his word, separates Paul from these other prisoners. They're all prisoners. But these other prisoners, without a question, are wicked and evil men. And they're going to Rome perhaps to be tried, or perhaps they've already been tried, and they're going to Rome to suffer their fate, to spend years and years and years and perhaps the rest of their life in prison or perhaps to be slain once they get to Rome. Paul's going to Rome because he made an appeal unto Caesar, having been once again falsely accused, falsely imprisoned. He made his appeal to Caesar. It was granted. And after it was granted, we're going to find where Agrippa says, had he not appealed to Caesar, he might have been set free. But the Lord's already told Paul he's going to Rome. Paul says, I must also see Rome. It was important for Paul to get to Rome. Once Paul gets to Rome, he will remain a prisoner in Rome. And we don't know how Paul died. Tradition tells us, history tells us, he was beheaded while he was in Rome. But while he's in Rome, he's going to write the several epistles. He's going to write Ephesians, he's going to write Colossians, he's going to write Philippians, and he's going to write Philemon while a prisoner in Rome. Now the Word of God teaches us that God's Word has free course. No matter what the condition of the messenger or the writer or whatever, uh, they can't imprison the Word of God. So the Word of God has free course. And while he's a prisoner, Paul, and we don't want to get ahead of ourselves here this morning necessarily, but he's going to have an audience he's going to preach to, and he's going to have time to write at least four church epistles, three epistles and a letter to Philemon while he's over there in Rome. Now, we find where they're going to board this ship, and they're going to set sail. And they're going to come to a place, first of all, called Sidon. Sidon is one of those little cities connected to Tyre along the Mediterranean Sea. Now, we spoke a few weeks ago about the woman from Tyre, if you remember that, Matthew chapter 15, who had a daughter grievously ill. Now, that's Gentile territory. But you're going to find at Sidon where Julius, this centurion, did something he didn't have to do. God brought Paul into favor with him to the point that it said the centurion gave Paul liberty at Sidon to refresh himself with his friends. Paul had friends at Sidon. Perhaps that woman in Matthew 15 was one of them. We read also where multitudes from Tyre and Sidon had gone down into the land of Palestine on an occasion to be healed of their diseases and their infirmities. Perhaps some of them were his friends. But the point is Paul had friends. He had enemies. <laughs> he had an abundance of enemies. But Paul had friends. And the centurion allows him, gives him the liberty entreated him, that's the word used, entreated him, gave him favor, when he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to. He never met Paul. Paul's a prisoner. Why give Paul special treatment? Why give Paul special treatment he didn't give the other prisoners? Because this is a story of the wonderful, amazing providence of God. 
how that God can bring people into our lives that we've never met before. How God can bring people in our lives that will show us favor and do us things that benefit us that we've never met before and you really wonder why they did it. Because God is providence can do such things as that. Here's a centurion, Gentile, Roman soldier. He's got soldiers under him. He's got prisoners. He's got to get to Rome. And Paul happens to be one of them. But when he speaks about the prisoners, it speaks about Paul being separate. He's a prisoner, but he's separate. And so they come to this place called Sidon. We find Paul's refreshed by his friends. Paul's getting ready to take a long journey and it couldn't be a dangerous journey. Now, in the scriptures, you're going to find where there's five different storms that ships are on the sea during these five different storms. We look over the very first one I'm going to mention is the ark. If you want to call the ark a ship, it wasn't a typical type ship, but nevertheless, it was a vessel that floated on the water. And you're going to find where God sends a storm, the storm of all storms, I'd say, wouldn't you? It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. The firm was opened up. Waters came down. The bottom erupted. Waters came up. And we have a worldwide flood. And you find that Noah and his family who are in the ark, they all are delivered. Not a one of them perish. I want you to remember that. Because in all five of these, those are in the ships. Not a one ever perished. Not a one ever died. Now those outside the ship, the days of the flood, of course they all perished. The wicked, the evil, the ungodly, they all perished. But those in the ship didn't perish. I take a look at a second one by the name of Jonah. Jonah is on a ship. Remember, he went down there in opposition to what God told him to do. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to where he wanted to go, got on the ship. He was so at ease about all this, he went to the bottom of the ship and just went to sleep. And therefore, he had the label attached to his name as Jonah the Sleeper. But a great storm came, a great storm. And I believe when God sends storms in, our, in the pathway of our disobedience, there are storms like we've never seen before. I'm sure the ones on this ship have never seen a storm quite like this. The Bible calls it a great tempest, a great tempest. So we find Jonah in that ship, but nobody on that ship, including Jonah, who winds up out of the ship in the belly of a whale, not a one of them perish. Come to Matthew chapter 8, the Lord and his disciples are in a ship, and they're on the Sea of Galilee. And a great storm comes upon the Sea of Galilee. The Lord Jesus Christ will still that storm, and nobody on that ship will perish, not one. In Matthew chapter 14, there's another case where the disciples are in a ship on that sea and the Lord's not on that ship to begin with. He's going up the mountain to pray. And then the Lord who sees the disciples in great peril on the sea comes down from the mountain and walks upon that water and comes and we know the rest of the story how God once again delivers Peter of course from drowning and he and all that are in that ship get to the other side not a one of them perish. We're going to have a storm here It's going to come into the picture here a little bit called Eurokalon. It's uh, basically a name for a typhoon. To me, a typhoon at sea is like a real strong major uh, tornado here on land. And it's going to be a tremendous tempest. And we'll see a few of the details in a few minutes here. But not a single one of these 276 people in this ship are going to perish, not a one. Five storms in the Bible, five ships 
in these storms in the Bible, and not a single person in all these ships here are going to perish, not a single one. So they set sail from Sidon, and we won't go into all the details about that, but they come to a place called Fair Havens. And the weather, the wind is being contrary to them, and they've lost time. And so a decision has to be made as to whether they're going to set sail from this place called Fair Havens or not. And so there's a discussion. Now, they're trying to determine the course here. Now, to believers, to the child of God, when you're trying to determine your course, it should never be done unless you seek first the will of God. That's very, very important, to seek the will of God. In Ephesians 5, 17, Paul says, Be ye not unwise, knowing the will of God. Romans 12, 2, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. Three things about God's will. It's good, it's perfect, and acceptable, whether we understand it or not. He didn't say we might uh, understand all the details about it, but we know it's good, perfect, acceptable. But Ephesians 5 says, understand, how am I going to understand the will of God? By studying God's will. And the Bible is a revelation of God's will. When I study the Bible, I'm studying things concerning the will of God. Some of it is eternal and some of it is here in time, a timely part of His will. Not every detail of your life is spelled out in here. It's not going to tell you by name who you should marry. It's not going to tell you specifically where you should work. It's not going to tell you specifically where you should go to school, et cetera, et cetera. But it's going to give you guidelines. It's going to give you principles that when you're trying to make decisions, you need to be sure that it's not contrary to God's will to do what you're about to do. And you won't know that unless you study God's will. They're trying to determine a course of life right here. It's a classic example of how not to seek the will of God. First of all, they get impatient. They said time's already spent, so to speak. We've already lost time because of the contrary winds. And then they look at this place called Fair Havens, and it was not according to their liking in terms of accommodations. And then we're going to find this in and is going to discuss this thing with the master and the owner of the ship and the pilot. And then Paul's going to put his two cents worth in. Who is he? He's just the man of God, right? That's all he is. He's just the man of God. And then, on top of that, a soft uh, south wind begins to flow, which is exactly what they needed. So if you look at all the circumstances, it looks like the right thing to do is to sail. The Bible tells us here that the, fa the fast had already taken place. They had reference to the Day of Atonement. That puts this situation in between mid-September and mid-October. And the sailors of that day knew, starting in mid-September, sailing became very dangerous. You could sail from September to the middle of November with some difficulty, but you never sail from the middle of November to March. That was impossible. So we hadn't got there yet. But we're in a time where storms, much more frequent, serious storms, stormy season is about, about to hit. Paul warns them. He says, we need to stay right where we're at. We don't need to sail. He said, I perceive I reason, I perceive there will come much damage to the lady and also to our lives if you set sail. So the centurion has to make a decision. All right, he's got to make a decision. Who's he listen to? The man of God, Paul, 
Because remember now, the centurion is a Roman soldier. He's a Gentile. He knows nothing about Paul other than Paul is a prisoner. He's going to talk to the owner of the ship. He's going to talk to the master of the ship, the pilot of the ship. Now, they sail all the time. It's their business, right? So from a human perspective, it seems like it'd be better to listen to them than to listen to Paul. I am not a psychiatrist. I am not a psychologist. But I know a little bit about the Word of God. I've been trying to study the Word of God for over 50 years. I know a little bit about the Word of God. And I'm not a professional psychologist or psychiatrist, but I know what God's Word teaches about a lot of different things. And I know there are good psychologists, there's good psychiatrists, and there are times when God's children need to go see one if it's a Christian counselor or a Christian psychologist or psychiatrist, which is getting harder and harder to find. But most of God's people would be better off listening to the man of God than with the so-called professionals out here in this world. Because God's Word is a lot of teaching about human nature. God's Word has a lot of teaching in it concerning human behavior. God's Word, any principle of truth you ever encounter out here in life, you'll find it originally in God's Word right here. So they don't listen to Paul. Now over here in the book of James, we're given in chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 4, we're, we're given an exhortation concerning the will of God. Let me get that while I'm here. He says, some might say, we're going to go into the city and spend a year there, and we're going to buy, and we're going to sell, and we're going to get gain. Notice how positive that all is. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to this city. We're going to stay there a year, and we're going to buy, and we're going to sell, and we're going to get gain. James says, you're not wise to take such a stance. He says, what is your life? He says, it's like a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. It's like steam coming out of a kettle on a stove. Put that kettle in there and water it and turn the heat onto it. You see the, the, you see the steam coming up. How long does that steam last? Not very long, does it? He says, therefore, you ought to say, if it be the Lord's will, we'll do this and we'll do that. <laughs> Just always reminds me of this story of the man walking down the road with his prized cow. And he sees his neighbor. And the neighbor says, where are you going? He said, I'm going down to the city down here, and I'm going to sell my cow for top dollar. He says, me and uh, we've already worked it out. And the man said, well, you ought to say, you know, if it'll be the Lord's will. He said, the Lord ain't got nothing to do with it. He said, I've already made a deal. I've already talked to the man. We have an agreement. We have an arrangement. I'm going to get X amount of dollars for it. Okay. So he goes on down the road, and after a while... The man sees this man coming back with no cow, and he's, his clothes are all torn, one thing or another. Well, what happened? Well, I met some robbers, by the way, and they took my cow. He said, well, where are you going now? He said, I'm going home, Lord willing. He learned the importance of Lord willing, didn't he? How we make our plans so oftentimes without, first of all, consulting with the Lord about the matter. So they're going to set sail, contrary to the advice the apostle has given. Now I want to read to you what takes place here in Acts 27, verse 14. But not long after there arose a, a tempestuous wind called Eurachalon. And when the ship was caught and could not bear up into the wind, we let her drive. And running under a certain island, which is called Clauda, we had much work to come by, by the boat. 
which when they had taken up, they used helps in undergirding the ship and fearing lest they should fall into the quicksand, strike, strike sail, and so were driven. And we were exceedingly tossed with a tempest. The next day they lightened the ship, and the third day we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. In other words, you got a picture here of everything coming apart. You got a picture here of everybody doing all they possibly can, all they know to do to try to salvage a situation, to keep from perishing at sea. What takes place? To verse 20. And when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, it's been a dark time. The sun has not shined. The stars have not appeared. And no small tempest lay on us, which means there was a great tempest, a great storm. All hope that we should be saved was then taken away. That's the situation. Not a person on this ship thinks they're ever going to get off that ship. Not a person on this ship believes they'll ever see land again. Not a person on this ship believes they're going to be delivered, but they're all going to perish out there at sea. The grave, the, uh, the sea is going to be the graveyard. Do you know, have you ever thought about how many expressions we use to describe the journey of life that involve the sea? Have you ever been at the sea and everything was so calm? I mean, I mean, just... The water was just like smooth as glass. And you just wondered, how in the world can this great body of water be in such peace? And then the very next day, the wind begins to blow and the waves begin to come up and the waves, the sea begins to churn. And the next thing, you become quite frightful. The day before, you were totally at peace, but now you become quite frightful, right? Is that not the way life is? Life's ups and downs and ins and outs, is it not? Ups and downs, hills and valleys, so to speak, storms of life. Do you not use that expression from time to time? I mean, going through some of the storms of life. We may wish somebody Godspeed when they're about ready to take a trip, and you may say, smooth sailing. Hope you have smooth sailing. Or you might be trying to warn somebody, especially a young person, about the importance of making good decisions in life. And the consequences of making bad decisions in life, decisions contrary to God's will, then what do you say to them? Be careful as you make shipwreck of your life. And then uh, you ever uh, told somebody, listen, you might as well just jump right in the middle of it, go ahead and do it and just sink or swim. I never have quite understood that one. I mean, I know people who've been tossed into a swimming pool over their head and don't know how to swim, and they say, well, sink or swim. <laughs> or maybe you've been procrastinating. Maybe you've been procrastinating, putting things off. And then it's too late. Somebody says, well, that ship has already sailed. Wonder why all these expressions are like that. And then someone passes away or passes. I got drop that away off of it. They pass or they depart. You might say, well, sister so-and-so has now finally reached the other shore. These are all just expressions to describe different things in life as if we were on a ship on the sea, and that's a picture of our journey. A soft wind, soft south wind began to blow to begin with, and things was well. But now a great wind begins to blow. A great tempest comes up. But I've got some good news for you. 
It's found in Isaiah 32, 1 and 2, where he says, Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. And a man shall be as a hiding place from the wind, and as a covert from the tempest. And this man is Jesus Christ. As rivers of water in a dry place, as a shadow of a great rock in a weary land. In a land that's weary, thank God there's a great rock casting a great shadow where we can benefit from that shadow. A man shall be as a hiding place from the wind. As the wind never blows so hard. I remember when I was about six years old as a hurricane came in to where we lived in North Carolina, the Hurricane Hazel. I remember the name. And we had some large pecan trees right outside the side of the house. And I remember looking out the window and seeing these great big old pecan trees almost bowing down to the ground. That was not a comforting feeling. That was a frightening feeling we had at that particular time. I've had a few storms in life just like that. But thank God I recognize there's a man who's as a hiding place from the wind. And some of the great storms has come along in my lifetime. Thank God he's a covert from the tempest. Three of these five storms I spoke to you about use the word tempest. A great tempest <laughs> uh, is used in some of them. So this storm is here, and now for many days, the sun has not shined, the stars have not, they ain't seen a star, they hadn't seen the moon, they hadn't seen the sun for a number of days, and all hope of being saved has been gone. It's lost. Now here's an example. In fact, you're going to find the word saved or saved used three times in this chapter. Not a single time does it have reference to deliverance from sin or from hell to heaven. It's not eternal, it's timely. The word saved always means deliverance. You have to determine what you're being delivered from, what you're being delivered to. All hope of being saved was lost. It perished. I don't know how you get any lower than that. Do you? I mean, I don't know how you can get any more down and perhaps depressed or whatever. You've, uh, you've reached a point where you have no hope of being delivered. Where is any signs of any rescue coming? There is none. Not from a human perspective. But after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, you should have hearkened unto me. <laughs> Paul was human, wasn't he? Have you ever told somebody, well, didn't I tell you though? Didn't I tell you so? Didn't I? Who wants to hear that, by the way? When you've done messed up big time, who wants to hear somebody say, well, I told you so. <laughs> didn't I not tell you about this? Didn't I warn you about this? Didn't I tell you this is exactly what was going to happen if you did that? Uh, who wants to hear that? <laughs> well, if you don't want to hear it, then you don't need to deliver it either. <laughs> If you don't want to hear from somebody else, no need for you to tell them. They already know they've messed up. When you look in Luke chapter 15, you read about the prodigal son who wasted all he had on righteous living. When he came back home, he had to face his father. He probably thought, boy, he's going to lower the boom on me. He's probably going to read me the right act. He's probably going to lower the boom on me. What did he say? He said, kill the fatty calf. That's what he said. He said, take my robe and put upon him and take my ring upon his finger and shoes upon his feet and let us make music and be merry because my son that once was lost, he's now found. My son that once was, uh, uh, you know, um, lost, way in, lost, was found, was dead, is now alive. He didn't say one thing to his son, did I not tell you so? Not one thing. But that's the temptation, isn't it? Uh, uh, you know, that's what you want to say. Well, Paul said it. <laughs> 
He says, sirs, you should have listened to me. But he didn't dwell on it. He just reminds them, I warned you. And now here we are. He said, you should hearken unto me, not have loosed from Crete, and have gained this harm and loss. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer. Wonder what they thought when he said that. Good cheer. What we got to be good cheer about? Well, he's going to tell them. But he bars an expression. It was one of the favorite expressions of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 9, there's a case where Christ is in a house teaching and preaching the gospel. House is full. And there's a man sick of the palsy. And he's got four friends that bring him there to Jesus. And they tear a hole in the roof and let him down right there in front of the Lord Jesus Christ because there's no room for them to come in at the door. You know what the very first words of Christ was to this man? Be of good cheer. That's the very first words. Be of good cheer for thy sins have been forgiven thee. He didn't even say anything to him about his palsy at this point. Thy sins be forgiven thee. And I think that's probably the number one thing in terms of the priority of a message. Thy sins be forgiven thee. Of course, we know how Christ healed him of his palsy. Be of good cheer. In Matthew chapter 14, the Lord is walking on the water. His disciples in that ship we mentioned earlier in that great storm. And when they see him, first of all, they think it's the Spirit, which adds fear on top of fear. What's the first words of the Lord Jesus Christ to them? He says, be of good cheer, it is I. And I like to emphasize who the it is I is. <laughs> Don't you? I want to know who is the it is I. When I understand who the it is I, I can be of good cheer. Because the it is I is Jesus Christ, the master. It is I is Jesus Christ, the sovereign God of the universe. It is I is our redeemer. It is I is our reconciler. It is I is our justifier. It is I. It is I. Be of good cheer. It is I. I'm the one who is a man that's a hiding place from the wind. I'm the man that's a covert from the tempest. It is I. Be of good cheer. In Acts 23, 11, I mentioned a little earlier, the first words of Jesus, the very first words of Jesus to Paul on that occasion was, be of good cheer. As that has been a witness to me in Jerusalem, you shall also be a witness to me uh, in Rome, but he starts that message out with that expression, be of good cheer. The last thing the Lord says to his disciples in John chapter 16, verse 33, after he's been speaking to them in John 14, 15, and now 16, the last words he says unto them, he says, these things I've spoken to me, unto you, that in me you might have peace. He said, in this world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer for I've overcome the world. So, you know, if the Lord used it, Paul used it, why can't I use it? I think I can, don't you? So I'm just going to use it right now. I'm going to say it right now to each and every one of you. I don't care where you're at, what you're going through in life, one thing and another. I'm going to say right now, be of good cheer. <laughs> uh, be of good cheer because I, you know who the it is I is, right? <laughs> Try saying that real quick four or five times. <laughs> you know who the it is I is. And therefore, you can be of good cheer. You can be of good cheer. You know what the ultimate end is going to be, right? You know God's going to take you out of this mess some sweet day. God's going to deliver you off this, world, off this globe, out of this world, right into glory someday. And so therefore, the suffering of this present world are not to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed to us in heaven. Therefore, be of good cheer. 
Be in good cheer. <laughs> I have to tell myself that sometimes. <laughs> and I'm all down, mother grubs one thing and another, and I'm wondering, is anybody ever going to come along and light this house over here? I said, be in good cheer. <laughs> Somebody, somewhere, everybody keeps telling me, you know, say, oh, oh it's, it will sell. That's one for sure. It will sell. Just didn't tell me when. <laughs> but Lord willing, 11 days from now, <laughs> if all continues to go well, I've been marking them down since day 21, 20, 19, 18. <laughs> Yesterday it was 12. Today it's 11. <laughs> Be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. And then he's going to tell them why. Be of good cheer, for there shall be loss of no man's life among you but of the ship. Now they've already had the, you know, the feeling that nobody was going to be delivered. Now Paul says, none of you are going to perish. For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Who's the most important man on this ship? It's not the centurion, it's not the owner, it's not the master. The most important man on this ship is Paul himself. He said, An angel of God appeared to me last night, and here's what he told me. And he says, The God that he represented is whose I am. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, by the grace of God I am what I am. By the grace of God I am what I am. And now he says, whose am, am I? I belong to him. Did you know you belong to the Lord? You have a vital relationship with the Lord. That's what eternal life is all about. It's having a vital relationship with the Master, with the Savior, my friends, Jesus Christ. You have a relationship, a living, vital relationship with him. You belong to him. You belong to him since before time ever began when God marked you out and chose you and gave you to the Son in that great everlasting covenant. You belong to him. You belong to him by redemption. You belong to him uh, uh, from the standpoint of he is the, uh, the uh, paid the atonement price. You belong to him. That's what Paul is saying right here. He says, of whom I serve, I serve the true and living God. And then he says... Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer. This is the second time he's told this. For I believe God, it shall be even as it was told me. How many times you ever heard somebody say, the word of God said it, and I believe it, and that settles it. Is that the right order? The word of God says it, that settles it. And I should believe it. But it's settled whether I believe it or not. It's settled. Whatever God's word says, that settled it right there. So that's the proper order. God's word says it. That settles it. And I believe it. The message came to Paul. He said, no man's going to perish. But I'm going to give you the lives of all on this ship with thee. He says, a ship will be destroyed. How's a ship going to be destroyed and everybody else delivered? Well, the Lord didn't tell Paul that. He just gave him the message here, and Paul said, I believe it. Then he says, Howbeit we must be cast upon a certain island. Now, how did Paul know that? We at Acts 28 1, we're going to find out they're going to be cast upon a certain island. How did Paul know that? You see, Paul stayed in touch with God. 
Paul stayed in touch with the Lord. And you can and I can. We need to stay in touch with the Lord, don't we? We need to stay in touch with God. Somebody leaves home, goes off to school or something. What's the mother and them say? Well, be sure you stay in touch. <laughs> be sure you stay in touch. Remember the story of the, of the man who gave his son a Bible to read? And the son wanted some money. The father had put a good amount of money right in the middle of the Bible. He never found the money because he didn't read his Bible. <laughs> Need to stay in touch with God. How are you going to do that? By doing what you're doing here this morning, being in the house of God, reading your Bibles on a daily basis, praying to the Lord, drawing close to God. Paul stayed in touch with God, and therefore God stayed in touch with Paul. Who's the most important man on this ship? Paul is. Things got worse for a while. When the 14th night was come, as we were driven up and down in Adria about midnight, the shipmen deemed they drew near to some country and sounded found it was 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little further, they sounded again, found it 15. They're getting closer to land. Then fearing lest we should fall upon rocks, they cast four anchors out of the stern and wished for the day. Wished for the day. Didn't pray for the day, they wished for the day. As the shipmen were about to flee out of the ship, when they let down the boat into the sea under color as though they would have cast anchors out of the fore ship, Paul said this to the centurion and to the soldiers, except these abide in the ship, you cannot be saved. Except you abide in the ship. Remember what I told you earlier? Five storms, five ships, nobody perished concerning all that were in the ship. Paul said, the Lord has showed me the ship's going to be destroyed, but everybody's going to be spared, except you abide in the ship, can't be saved. That's a timely deliverance. I hope that's real clear in the context of what we're talking about here. Now, Paul started out a prisoner. He stays a prisoner. But beginning back here a little earlier, Paul takes control. This is a side of Paul we've never seen before. Paul takes control. He now, you might say, is the master of the ship. He's giving orders. He's giving instructions. He's giving directions. He's telling what's going to happen and what they should do. And while the day was coming on, Paul besought them all to take meat, saying, This day is the fourteenth day that you have tarried and continued fasting, having taken nothing. They had not eaten for fourteen days. Paul says, It's time for us to eat. It's time for us to eat. Wherefore I pray you to take some meat, for this is for your health, for there shall not a hair fall from the head of any of you. How does Paul know all this? Called Paul stays in touch with the Lord. Then were they all of good cheer. That's the third time. And they also took some meat. Notice he said, He gave thanks to God in presence of them all. And when he had broken, he began to eat. Paul hadn't eaten for 14 days. You know he's hungry. You know he's weak. But before Paul takes one bite, Paul gives thanks in the presence of them all. This is not giving thanks in the presence of church members. This isn't giving thanks in the presence of friends and family. This is giving thanks in the presence of wicked and evil men. Not all, but some. Many of these are prisoners. And then when he had broken it, he ate, and they all ate, and they all had good cheer. 
Now let's look, look at how this ends in the last part of Acts 27. In Acts 27, verse 41, and fall into a place where two seas meet, met. They ran, the sh- they ran the ship aground, and the fore part struck fast. It remained unmoved, but the hinder part was broken with the violence of the waves. And the soldiers' counsel was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim out and escape. That was always the counsel of the prisoners. You let a prisoner escape, you take the place of the prisoner. These prisoners, if they escape, they, we may not be able to get them back. So the counsel was to kill the prisoners. Paul is a prisoner. But the centurion, willing to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded they which could swim should cast themselves first in the sea and get to land. And the rest, some on boards and some on broken pieces of the ship. And so it came to pass, they escaped all safe to land. <laughs> just like Paul said, just like the angel told Paul, it came to pass to a jot and to a tittle. Notice the centurion once again. He gave Paul liberty in the very beginning. He then took the advice of Paul when it came to those people trying to escape. And now when they're going to kill the prisoners, the centurion says, not so, because he wants to see that Paul is delivered and Paul is safe and Paul will not be slain. God used this centurion, this Roman soldier, this Gentile, to be a great benefit and help to the apostle Paul and delivered him. And now they're on this island. And I'm not going to go into chapter 28, although it's a marvelous chapter about the hospitality of the barbarous people that they found there, how they took care of Paul and, and all those prisoners, and then never met them, and yet they fed them and they warmed them up with a fire and one thing and another. But I just want to give you this here in Rome, uh, excuse me, Acts 28, and, um, and in verse 15 and 16. And from thence, when the brethren heard of us, they came to meet us as far as Aperforum and the three taverns, whom when Paul saw, he thanked God and took courage. And when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was suffered to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him. Now, how in the world did Paul get such special preferential treatment? Because he lived close to the Lord, he stayed in touch with the Lord. The Lord had him there for a reason. And the Lord put it in the heart and mind of this centurion to separate him from all those other soldier, uh, prisoners. He delivered all those other prisoners to the captain of the guard, but not Paul. Paul was suffered to dwell in his own hired house. And you read the rest of this chapter, you'll find where Paul gave great testimony and great witness to those that were wrong. He was a prisoner, but the word of God the Word of God had free course and was not in captivity. Remember, the Lord can bring people into your life that you've never met before to a certain time. And they can show you great favor and help you in many different ways. And there's no reason, real reasonable explanation as to why they're doing it. Don't overlook that. Just thank the good Lord that he put it in the hearts of them to show you favor in the times of your great trials and your great tribulations.